shoot shall sprout from the stump of Jesse and from his roots a bud shall blossom. This beautiful passage from Isaiah chapter 11 reminds us that our Lord God can indeed bring wonderful life from that which appears dead. Hello, this is Father Thomas once again, and welcome to another of the Sprouting Stump podcast series. In this series, we dive theologically and spiritually deeper into various topics of our faith that might need a renewal so the grace of God can blossom more fully within our hearts. In this first talk, Father Thomas provides an introductory prologue to kick off the New Manor Retreat. In his delightful interactive style, he sets the backdrop for the day, discussing old manna to new manna. As we prepare ourselves for the talk, let us consider these relevant scripture passages. In Exodus 16, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, I am going to rain down bread from heaven for you. Each day the people are to go out and gather their daily portion. In the morning there was a layer of dew all about the camp, and when the layer of dew evaporated, fine flakes were on the surface of the wilderness, fine flakes like hoarfrost on the ground. On seeing it, the Israelites asked one another, What is this? For they did not know what it was. But Moses told them, It is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. The house of Israel named this food manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and it tasted like wafers made with honey. John 6. Our ancestors ate manna in the desert. As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So Jesus said to them, Amen, amen, I say to you, It was not Moses who gave the bread from heaven. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. Your ancestors ate the manna in the desert, but they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat it and not die. We find this referenced in the Holy Mass during the Eucharistic Prayer 2, where the priest says, Make holy, therefore, these gifts, we pray, by sending down your Spirit upon them like the dewfall. And now, here is Father Thomas. Today we're going to have a beautiful aspect of our faith, so critical, the new manner. We start all things with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Father, in your great love for us, you gave us our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, present in a very special way. He is the new man that come down from heaven. We not only have the wonderful gift of him simply being present to us, we have the wonderful gift of being able to take him into ourselves, being able to share in the divine life. So we ask your blessing upon this day. Allow it be a day where our hearts continually grow closer to your Son, our Lord Jesus. We have a greater appreciation for the new man. We recognize that we are called to a special way, participate in his own divine life. We ask that you help us to endure whatever difficulties we encounter with faith and patience. Open our hearts and our minds to the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. Most especially, make us a better people. Allow this time to be a time of growth, a time of love, a time of faith and sharing, a time to confess with you. We ask all this in your son's name, over Jesus, and this reigns forever and ever. Amen. Amen. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
Okay, well very good. You pretty much hit on basically the most common terms that we use for the new man. I'm going to keep saying the new man because I don't want to identify any particular aspect of this as if it's more important. If I keep saying the whole Eucharist, then we're going to be thinking that is the fullness of what we're talking about. But we've actually got, you've listed four different faces, believe it or not, for the new manna. Now, if you had your program, you'd be able to look ahead and see what they are, but you've all identified them. You might be asking, why are there different names for it? Why do we have different names for this? One of them was like right here on the screen, so we're able to kind of cheat a little bit. That was one of the names of the faces of the new manna. Why do we have multiple names or different, what I call faces? Why do you think that is? Different aspects. For the importance. For the importance, so we can see the depth of the importance and different aspects of it. So we can relate. Yes, you're all, you guys are doing pretty good here. <laughs> it's so that we can have, see different aspects of the new manna so that we can enter into a different type of relationship with this. So every one of the faces allows us to see this differently and to respond a little bit differently. Why do you think there's four? You're never going to get this because you don't listen to my homilies. Anyone here from my homilies? Nope. Well, they might have gotten it. They remembered a homily from about six weeks back when I was talking about numbers in the scriptures. Does anyone know what number four represents in scripture? Almost every time there's something with four, it means something. Anyone have any clue what it means? Four signs of the church. Four signs of the church. Yes, but scripture was written before the church, so that can't be it. Forty is a pretty prominent number. Yep, well, there's, there's about nine numbers that are prominent, but four has a special place. Nope. You're looking at number eight, actually. Number four refers to a universality or a totality. You ever heard that expression, the four corners of the of the earth, when you're talking about the fullness of the earth. You know why they say the four corners? No corners. There are no corners. Well, because they didn't always know there was no corners. They thought the world was flat. They thought it was a big square. So when they refer to the four corners, they're talking about the whole earth. So four often represents a fullness, a wholeness that encompasses all of humanity, but it also encompasses the fullness of whatever it is you're discussing. How many gospels are there? Four. I mean, think about why there's not one. There's four. It refers to a totality. That's a universal aspect. That the four Gospels give us different faces of the life of Christ, in a sense, so we can see different ways and relate to them in different ways. And that four is prominent in Scripture. And that's why there's four faces to the new manna. Now, where was manna first introduced? Because I say new manna, so what was the old manna? desert. All right, so what was going on? They were hungry. They were hungry. Yes, oh my gosh. Did you take us out of Egypt just for us to die in the desert where we could go back and sit and eat our leeches and our fruits? And It was a gift from God because they needed something to get them through the desert. Now they had supplies with them. 
And they had some food with them already, because remember when they left that the, the Egyptians were so disposed that they basically just opened up everything and said, here, here, take it, take it. Yeah. Well, they're going to be in the desert for a long time. Now, I don't know about you, but you're going to carry so many things on your back that are going to get you through the desert. And after a while, you're going to run out of stuff. And as typical human beings like we are, we're going to start complaining because we don't have what we want. I mean, it's only been like a few days, and they're already saying we're starving. I mean, how many days can you go before you're truly starving? Forty. Close to 40. That's true. You can actually go almost 40 days without eating before you truly start to starve. I mean, Jesus fasted for 40 days in the desert. I've never actually tried it myself, but I might have to start if this keeps going on. Anyways. So we have the old man that was given to them in the desert. Now, amazingly enough, God gave them manna for how many reasons? Take a guess. Four. Four. There's actually four reasons why he gave the manna. As we go through this, you'll understand what those four reasons are, because he gave us the new manna for how many reasons? Four. Four reasons. And you're thinking, wait a minute, there's a lot more reasons for the new manna than just four. No, there's not, because they can all be encompassed in these four. And if you go through the different faces, this will start to actually develop a little bit. So I don't want to jump the gun and get into this. But the old manna was given to them so that they could survive the desert journey. So where were they, where were they supposed to be going? Promised land. Promised land. You know how long it was supposed to actually take them to get to the promised land? A couple weeks. Yep. How long did it actually take them? Forty years. Forty years. You know why? They kept going in circles. Why did they keep going in circles? They didn't trust God. They didn't trust God, and they kept complaining that he wasn't going to provide. You kept arguing with God, and God got irritated with them and said, Look, you guys want to hang out in the desert and complain? I'm going to let you. And you know why it was 40 years? What was one generation considered back then? 40 years. 40 years. Oh, yeah. It was 40 years because God had told them that other than Moses and Joshua, every single one of them that began the journey, none of them will actually make the journey. Because the wages of sin are death. death. So that was what was happening. So God gave them something, though, that in spite of the fact that they're a bunch of whiners and complainers, they were sinners, they didn't trust God, he gave them something to allow them to get through the desert journey. He could have just let them drop dead right there and said, oh my gosh, it's been like three hours. I mean, honestly, it was within an hour after they escaped from Pharaoh, and they're already whining that they want to go back. Oh my gosh, Pharaoh's on our heels. I mean, I know you just like turned rivers into blood, and you turned all these gnats and everything like that, and you killed their firstborn, and darkness covered the earth, but Pharaoh's on our tails. Uh, can we go back because we're afraid? Within hours after they were released. They had spent how many years in slavery? 400! Yeah. Complaining, we want out, we want out, we want out! And then four hours after they get out, they want to go back. And so God was giving them something to get them out of that mentality. To realize, you know what, I will provide for you, you don't need to go back to Egypt. Do you know what Egypt represents? Slaves. To what? Sin. Sin. 
Egypt, in a sense, is like the modern-day uh, Las Vegas. It's a place of sin. They wanted to go back to sin, and that's exactly what they're saying. We would rather go back and live a life of sin than to deal with some of the hardship of what it means to be a follower of God. That's exactly what their mentality was. Does that sound a little bit familiar? Yes, yes. All right, who of us have that mentality sometimes? Yes. Every one of us do. Because sin is our way of saying, you know what, God? I know you've taken care of me up to this point. But right now, I think this little way over here is a little bit better than what you have to offer. It's a little bit more comfortable, a little bit more pleasing. So let me go into that, a little bit of slavery. Because what's our mindset? If we go back, oh, he's just going to release us again, right? That's probably what they were thinking. Oh, we're going to go back and eat all the food of the Egyptians, and then God's just going to let us walk back out again. Well, sin is not a revolving Walmart. You don't get to walk in, shop around for sin, and then turn around and walk back out and think, oh, this is great. I mean, what did they think was going to happen? Oh, we're going to go back to Egypt, and the promised land is going to be like on the other side of Pharaoh's seat or something? But that's what we think. That's why we sin. And God says, I want you to realize that I will provide for you so that old manna was his gift to say, I will take care of you. And he gives it to them. You know how many days he gave it to them? Well, that's probably a trick question because you're going to go, let me see, 40 years times 365 days, take into account leap years over here, wait a minute, they didn't have a calendar back then. Anyways, every day, after about the third day when he first promised them, every single day for their entire journey to the promised land, he provides for them this manna. Except Sunday. Right, that's true. So it wasn't every single day. Well, he provided them every day, but he didn't have it actually manifest itself every day. Do you know why I did that? Because he says, for six days I'm going to produce manna, so that for the six days you take as much as what you need, no more. But on the Sabbath day, he says, you're not, I'm not going to produce any manna, because what did he do? Well, what did God do? Why didn't he, did they have to go hungry on the Sabbath? Saturday was the Sabbath. They collected. So it would have been on Friday, actually. So on Friday, if you get a mindset back to the Israelites, their Sabbath was actually Saturday. So on Friday, the day before Sabbath, he produces twice as much. And then they collect that so they can get through the Sabbath without actually having to do the work of collecting it. And then they start the week over again. Now, he does this for two reasons. Why do you think he does this? To get them to trust, to get them to trust him. One, what day does he not have them collected? Sabbath day. Okay, do you remember that who was leading them into the desert? Moses. Remember that big thing that Moses carried down from the mountain? It was called the Ten Commandments. Yeah. And that big number three one says, keep holy the Sabbath. That right, you shall not work unnecessarily. And God says, my commandments are so important to you. Not to him. To the people, he says, I will provide for you in such a way that you can keep the commandments even in the midst of a desert journey. So that's why he does it. But it's also to trust in him. Because what would happen if they collected more? Because this is amazing. This is the way the Israelites operate. This should be like ring a bell. Because every time I read the story of the Israelites, I'm thinking, man, I'm like 5,000 years out of time because I should have been right there with them. 
to live my life in the same way. He gives them an order and says, I will provide for you every single day, but twice on Fridays as much. He says, you collect only what it is that you need for your family. So what did people do the first time they go out? Get more. They got too much. They hoarded it. Exactly. You know what happened to it? It spoiled. So the next morning he was spoiled. Because he says, you need to trust me. Every day you need to trust me. Every day you need to wake up believing that it's going to be there. So it was spoiled. It was his reminder to them, you do it your way, things spoil, right? Right. Kind of like that milk that I had in my refrigerator that I, uh, I left a little bit too long. Anyways, it's spoiled. Now, there are people that in the course of history that have looked at these Bible stories, and they said, well, you know what? Man is a naturally occurring thing. Does anyone know what the word manna, what, what it means? Anyone have a clue? Why do we call it manna? What is this? Yes, actually, that's the translation is what is this? But I was reading a few commentaries. It actually means either this is manna or what is this that looks like manna. It's kind of like, but it's about that principle. Because there was a naturally occurring substance called manure back then, and it looked a little bit like that. So they're looking at that saying, is this that stuff? So the word man actually means that. Now, we can only do this in the English language, so I can't say that this is a, one of those cool things that God does, because if I was speaking to the Hispanics, which they're going to be getting the same retreat, when they translate it in Spanish, it doesn't work that way. But the word man is actually broken up into two words, or into two sections, man, hue. And hue is kind of that it, and the other one is like an explanation of what is, so like what is this type of stuff. Now if you look at that, man, hue, what's the first part of it? Man. So that's it. What? We can say this, well, think about this. This is one of those cool things we can do in English. Like I said, it doesn't work in Spanish because what's man in Spanish? Hombre. Sorry, that works not in the Hebrew word, so I can't like make this work. If it's broken up into two words, man, hue, two cool things about this. Again, this is not a Holy Spirit thing. This is a cool thing in English. What is the new manna? Jesus, right? I would hope you say Jesus. If you were to say like Oscar the Grouch, you'd say you're probably in the wrong place. Okay, Jesus. Jesus was a man. man. So the man is pointing to the new man was going to be a man. Now, man, Hugh. Two syllables. Flip them around and what do you got? Human. Isn't that kind of cool? Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, you can't do that in Spanish. It just doesn't quite work out. You flip it around and you go, no, it doesn't spell ombre, so whatever. But... That's to remind us, though, of what the man is all about. It is pointing to that which is human. Two aspects of that. That the new man will be a man, but also the new man is also meant for man. So we have this journey in the desert, and they get this manna from God. As I said, some people have argued that, oh, that was just a natural occurring stuff that happened on the ground. Well, it was naturally occurring, it would not be possible to have the quantity that it had. How many people were out in the desert? Like a lot. Thousands. 
And we're talking about every tribe of Israel was there collect. They had lots. And remember what was happening when Pharaoh tried to eliminate the, the firstborn? What actually was taking place? Because the mates, the, the, the midwives would say, when we go there, what happens? They've already delivered. They've already delivered. Now, that was the excuse to do that, but it says in the scriptures that the more Pharaoh tried to suppress them, the more that Israel multiplied. They were popping out babies left and right. Now, that's the one part of Israel that we have not copied that we should be copying, but that's a whole different topic. Now, I'm not telling you I'll go home and pop out babies, but you get the point. So They were growing, so there's a large number of them. So what was naturally occurring could not possibly feed all of them. But also, what did we say happened at the end of one day? If they did pay too much, it spoiled. It spoiled. But on the one day of the week when they collected twice as much, it did not spoil. Now, I don't know about you, but if I take an apple, it does not treat my, me any differently on Sunday than it does any other day of the week. Because it's a normal apple. But this was something special. And it was God's reminder to them also that this is my gift to you. And it's not just a naturally occurring food, even though it looked like that. He called it his gift from above. Moses even says this is a gift from above. It is a divine gift that has a natural qualities to it, but has divine properties. What did I just describe? The new manna. Get off the Eucharist thing. Okay, you jump with the gun here. <laughs> the new manna, the Eucharist, Holy Communion, the bread of life, real presence, those things, yes. And so that's principle of what was happening in the desert should be pointing us to the reality of our own lives. You know why there was 40 years in the desert? We already said that. Okay, who else is walking in the desert for 40 years? Jesus. Uh, no, Jesus was in the desert for 40 days. If he would have been fasting for 40 years, he would have been a really thin guy. Okay, so who else is walking in the desert for 40 years, figuratively speaking? Us? We are. Yeah. How many of us have hit the promised land? None. How many of you ever entered into the promised land? You're going to say none, right? Except. Well, it's a trick question. Except? When we go to Mass. When we go to Mass, exactly. Good, good counter there. Exactly. We entered into the promised land for a moment, but for the most part, we're still walking through the desert. For that 40-year period, because what happens at the end of our 40-year journey before we hit the promised land? We have to die. die, just like the people in the desert were all dead. We recognize that we are struggling ourselves to escape that desire to want to go back to a place of sin, deal with the hardships, trusting in God to provide for us, and recognizing that, guess what? I don't know about you guys. And gals, I don't know why we always say guys. Why do we do that? We always say guys. Don't you love when a waitress walks up to a lady, a table of ladies and say, what do you guys want? I'm thinking those guys don't want anything. I said, you're confusing them. I've lost my question. Right. <laughs> Where was I going with this? Oh, 
Oh yes, we're entering. We're in this desert journey. And I was going to say, I don't know about you guys and gals, but just like the Israelites had difficulty going through it, life sometimes can be a little bit tough. In spite of the fact that we have God with us, let's face it, if any of us woken up every single day and said, you know what, life is awesome, I'm so happy, everything's fantastic, I have my God, I can't wait for a new day. I think it's been like six years since I've done that. <laughs> we must have had like a week off in seminary when I said it. But anyways, it just, <laughs> life is tough sometimes, and we struggle. And when we struggle, and we decide that God has not provided enough, what do we do? The same thing the Israelites did. We turn away from God, we do our own thing, we start to grumble and complain. Even when we're accepting what God has given us, sometimes we're complaining, you know what God, it ain't good enough. I want something more. And sin is our way of saying, I want something more. God had provided for them everything they could possibly need. But he always would wait a little bit before he gave it to them because he wanted them to trust, but he also wanted them to do what? Why would God make them go a little bit thirsty and hungry? Because he did not provide for them right away. He didn't give them water right away. He didn't give them food right away. Why would he make them wait a little bit? Why don't you experience something? Yes. Even back then, God, God was trying to teach his people that in order for you to experience the promised land, you need to experience a little bit of suffering that you have no control over. It's not the suffering that we cause from our own stupidity. I mean, if we go do some sin and we suffer for it, that doesn't count. You can't rack up that up to the promised land suffering. It doesn't work that way. Oh my gosh, my life is horrible. I committed all these sins and I'm in jail and I have to pay all this debt back and everyone can't stand me. Sorry, God says, that doesn't work. That doesn't count towards your suffering chart. The suffering that we can't control. That's in God's hands. It's the suffering that we all have to endure. Because even back then, before Christ, in order to reach the promised land, ultimate promised land, we all need to be like Christ. Remember what Jesus says to his disciples. If I went through it, then you have to go through it too. He was trying to teach them. Because even though Jesus wasn't a human yet, he was still hanging out with the Israelites. He was just as the son of God and not as the human son of Mary. He was with them. In fact, it was through him that they were getting the manna. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit, given from the Father, through the Son, that they received the manna. Those words are going to ring a bell. You know what words I just kind of recited? What words do we say right before the great amen at Mass? Through him, with him, and in him. Exactly. Through him, with him, and in him. Oh my gosh, I say this. Every time I do this, when I say the words, every day at Mass, and then when I'm off, out of the Mass setting, I can't remember the words. Through him, with him, and in him. The unity of the Holy Spirit. We make mention of the Father. I'm going to be at Mass tonight and I'm going to go, bleh, 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 bleh. I'm going to blame all of you guys. Oh my 
that I don't want to flip in the book, so I'm going to be looking up and lose my spot. I'm going to look at the book and say, I never used the book. Where am I? And I'm going to think, oh my gosh, Father, go back to the desert. Okay, so anyway, this idea is through our Lord Jesus that we receive the wonder of what does it end? It ends the Eucharistic prayer. So what Israel experienced in the desert, we experienced as well. The exact same way spiritually, just a little bit different way physically. And that's why Jesus came as the new manna. This is because they needed this to get to their promised land. We needed to get to our promised land. Because Jesus himself says that. I am new manna. You ate you know, when somebody argues with them during the Bread of Life discourse, says, well, Moses gave us manna in the desert, and he says, you ancestors ate manna, and they died. When you eat of the new manna, you will live forever. So we're the transitioning now. But understand what the Israelites experienced. We need to always keep that in mind, because it gives us a greater understanding of what we're experiencing as well with the new manna. Because I said there was how many reasons that there was old manna? Four. How many reasons for the new manna? Four. What are they? I'm not telling you yet. But we'll get there. Okay, so this is the end of the first segment. I want to explain to me why I called it the new manna retreat. Because Jesus himself is the new manna. But it also points to the fact that if we have new, we had old and we have something we are called to be made new, but oftentimes we act like the old. So that's that's our introduction to get us into this now. I did have a question. So if you want to pass out, I did not write it. Did not write it. Interjects. We know we're doing God's work when things go wrong. Yeah, so we know we're doing God's, God's work, work when things are going wrong. I've been doing God's work for like 50 some years. I'll just set some of these up here in my paper. Anything at the moment, but we will have that shortly, I am sure. Confident. Can I say something real quick, just to everybody? Um, yes. I just wanted to second what Ann said about things going wrong. I started getting sick last Sunday night, and I thought, oh my gosh, we've got this thing coming up. What is it? COVID, you know, all this stuff. And then yesterday, morning, Blaine had loaded up our car to come down here, and then he left in our other car to go do something. I go out to get in our car to go to Mass and other things, and it was dead. And that's the car we needed to bring down here. And so, anyway, it's just, yeah. Ann and I were laughing, you know, when things start going crazy, it's like, somebody doesn't want us to go down there, you know, but just got to keep Persevering. Well, I just want to uh, spin off of that. When things are going wrong, we're doing God's work. Who do we blame it on? Who do we usually blame it on? The evil one. The evil one. However, once in a while, God throws obstacles in our way. The same reason He did the Israelites to say, "Do you trust me?" Are you willing to persevere in your faith enough to recognize that in spite of these difficulties, will you continue moving forward? Are you willing to do this even if everything goes wrong? 
If we can't say yes, we're still hanging out in the desert. So sometimes maybe this is God's way. Now, when God does something wrong, we have to kind of temper our attitude. Whereas when the devil does something wrong, we can kind of take an attitude with him. But when God does something and throws it our way, we have to be a little bit careful how we respond to that. Because Moses responded one day a little bit inappropriately to God, yeah. and it kept him out of the promised land. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I've done things to not hit a rock with a stick before, so I'm probably like a big, big trouble. So, yes, well, girl. I just wanted to say, it's always, I saw you see how he's going to work it out. Because, you know, we get stuck with all these things thrown out. I said, make us crazy, like a Mary dish shared and everything. And I, uh, but it's almost, when you turn it over to him, it's fun to see how he's going to work it out. So at the end of the day, you can say, thank you, God. Praise you, Jesus. It's fun, especially when it's over. After the car's been towed. After, you know, all that stuff. I mean, yesterday was just nuts. But when it's over. And goodness we're gracious. I don't know about you guys, but I'm still working out these problems. And it's been like 50-some years. I'm still yeah. dealing with it. Anyways, um... You don't have your little booklets here yet, so but I'm going to ask you to think about a question. If you were in the desert with the Israelites, how would you treat the manna? It's something to reflect on. Now, as you're reflecting on this, I want you to think about something. They were in the desert for 40 years. Every single morning, what they had for breakfast... Yeah. was manna. Every single morning they had to go collect the manna. And every single day they were still in the desert dealing with the desert conditions. So I want you to think about that. Because your first thought is, oh, I would appreciate it. Well, if I gave you cornflakes every single day for 40 years for breakfast, and I turned off your air conditioner in the summertime when I fed it to you, at some point, these cornflakes might not seem so appealing, even when they're saving your life. Just think about that. Be honest with that question. Following his introduction, Father would like you to ponder that although manna was not the only source of food for the Israelites, it was one of the principal means by which they survived in the desert and was a daily gift from God. Although having natural properties, it was a miraculous food that had a divine touch.